Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Today's guest is Dan Katz, scientist, technologist, and educator who applies innovative approaches to teaching law. His goal is to help create lawyers for today's biggest societal challenges by integrating science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. His programs at Michigan State Law and ITT Chicago Kent Law have produced some of the most innovative lawyers practicing and working in the business of law today. In addition to his full-time teaching gig, Dan is also involved in the legal tech industry. He is co-founder and chief strategy officer of LexPredict, and he also serves as a formal and sometimes informal advisor to a number of legal tech startups. Listen in to today's conversation to hear how Dan's experience as a kicker in college prepared him for law school. His pride in seeing one of his former students on the NASDAQ live stream in Times Square, and why the worst thing a legal tech entrepreneur can do is take too much money. Dan is a wonderful conversationalist. I think you'll learn a lot from our conversation. Enjoy. Thanks for joining. I know you're uh, an incredibly busy guy, and so making time for us is uh, very much appreciated. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. How have your travels been in the age of COVID? Well, my travels have been uh, very limited. Uh, I used to get around here or there, and uh, I've been on one trip to Germany a few months ago, and then uh, that's it since uh, February of 2020. So uh, I'm going to lose my my mileage status. I'm going to the back of the line, I guess. So. Yeah, I think a lot of us fall into that category. I mean, group seven or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I used to fly a couple hundred thousand miles a year, and I haven't been on a plane more than once or twice in the last 18 months. It's amazing, isn't it? It is. I mean, you know, it's a lifestyle change. It's not all bad, but it's definitely different. Yeah, you must have experienced that in your uh, teaching, the move to virtual. And then I, I don't I guess I don't know how Kent is doing their classes these days, whether it's a hybrid situation or in-person. But it must have been quite a, a learning curve for the professors as to how to adapt to a different teaching environment. It's definitely a different environment. I mean, we're still hybrid because we have, you know, students with different circumstances in terms of their ability to do in person. I mean, we're primarily trying to do in person, but invariably, if you even have two people on Zoom, then you're in a hybrid environment. And so one of the biggest challenges is just sort of how to manage the folks on Zoom relative to the people in the room and try to keep it somewhat engaging. Can't say that I perfectly nailed it or anything. It's definitely a work in progress, I imagine, everywhere around this. Yeah, you wouldn't have guessed this would have to be a learning experience for you a couple of years ago, would you? No, it has been, but I had taught some virtual classes before in some contexts, but never like this on an every week basis. I think the hardest classes are like very Socratic traditional classes, just to you know have that banter and engagement isn't quite there. I mean, this technology is quite nice, but it has ways to go to bring us the sort of virtual experience that is closer to the in-person one. Absolutely. Well, Dan, you're one of the foremost thinkers on transformation of the legal profession, particularly the application of data, analytics, technology, uh, machine learning, etc. How did you come to that interest? Because you got your undergrad from Oregon, go Ducks. There you go. New coach and all. And then uh, you got a master's simultaneously. I don't know if it was a joint degree with a, with your JD or if it was just simultaneous degrees in public policy. 
I don't know if your undergraduate focused in technology, but I don't think a public policy and traditional law school is leading to the type of career you've built for yourself. What was your desire going into law school and public policy? I would say that I was sitting in law school at times and thinking there's a quantitative underlay to things people are describing, but people act like it's impossible for us to do that. And simultaneously within the academy, there has been this rise of using empirical methods within law. And uh, the public policy degree, I did it simultaneously there at Michigan, is kind of a foray into the kind of quantitative world. And so I viewed it as a kind of step into all that. But it really sort of began with this kernel of folks were making statements to which there was empirical evidence, but acting like we couldn't ever even sort of manage or understand that. And I guess probably one of my biggest divides, I wrote this paper called the MIT School of Law, which was sort of like, why couldn't we have a polytechnic law school? Why couldn't we have a more quantitatively or scientifically oriented law school? Because the law school historically has been taught like a branch of the liberal arts rather than in the way the sciences are taught. That's probably like one of my fundamental views, I guess you might say. When you graduated from law school and with your master's degree, what'd you do next? So I I really was into the quantitative stuff. So I kept going for a PhD in, um, you know, Michigan, political science at Michigan. It's one of the most quantitative programs in, you know, going in terms of political science or, you know, social science broadly. And so I just sort of kept going down that path of wanting to do more work of that nature. And then uh, I got very interested, you know, you sort of just, you you take the red pill and then you just keep going, I guess, like (laughs) they did in the matrix. But uh, then I sort of was like, got into physics models field called complex systems, which is sort of like taking social science, maybe even going up a level in terms of methodological sophistication. And so Michigan is one of the world's best universities in this field of complex systems. You know, Santa Fe Institute is like the sort of home of all that, but it's really about breaking down disciplinary boundaries. So why can't I use a physics model or a biology model in law? Or, you know, 10 years ago, I wrote a paper in the Journal of Legal Education, which has an epidemiological model about the spread of ideas and information within law. Now, Obviously, we've all become armchair epidemiologists in the last two years. But, I was going to uh, say, we all know that now, don't we? But, uh, you know, that knowledge was helpful when this all happened. I was like, uh, oh, well, I've seen this before because a bunch of my friends were at that time, you know, were in public health and epidemiology that were involved with this field of complex systems. Was that helpful to you or scary for you if you understood what was about to happen? I shut it down and started getting N95 masks. You know, everybody else in my family thought I was a nut. And then they're like, I I guess you could see this coming. Uh, I was like, (laughs) yeah, the thing is, you know, I just happened to be exposed to this years ago. And so when you sort of see like an R not a reproduction rate of a certain level, you you know, you know, it's going to be exponential growth and you know where we're heading. And so uh, it's not like I said, I had it all figured out, but I kind of had a rough notion of what this was likely to turn into. So you have this idea that you want to make an MIT of law schools. Yeah. And you start with Michigan State with reInvent Law, and now you're at Kent with a law lab. Is that sort of in some sense what you're trying to do? Yeah, that's what I'm trying to do. Now, in a sense, because I think that's what the real need is, is for folks that can bridge these two divides. Or at least that's a need, let's put it that way. A need that's not as well served because we got plenty of people kind of getting the other way of being trained, you know, and the other way of thinking. And so 
how do you get some of the other to be made available? But that's that's kind of the, you know, I went to Michigan State and the former dean of Michigan State, I mean, they, they were looking to try to do something a little bit different because they were, you know, a school that wasn't as highly ranked, say, as some other schools. So they wanted to see if they could find some niches that made sense where they could really compete. And, um, you know, from years ago in sports, I understood this dynamic. I mean, uh, I mean, I played football at Oregon and, you know, we were going up against the USC's of the world who have all the resources and all the good, you know, they get all the good recruits. And so you have to figure out something that they don't do. And so I understood that dynamic quite well, sort of the money ball idea, if you will, brought to law school. Okay. So what position did you play at Oregon? I was a kicker punter. Wasn't the greatest kicker or punter, but I, I managed to hang around for the whole time there. I did the kickoffs for three seasons in the late 90s. My son was a kicker on his uh, D3 school. I feel bad for your parents because it's hard being a parent of a kicker because your son goes out there for one or two or three or four plays, and it's just incredibly nerve-wracking. So It definitely is. Those were formative lessons in a lot of ways, uh, the successes and the failures. I sort of thought, you know, when I got to law school, it's like, well, I've missed a kick on national television. What's going to happen to me? This professor's going to embarrass me. I've already done 10 times, 100 times this. This is nothing. I don't care about this. Yeah, I mean, you can play, you can go to YouTube and find it. I mean, you know, I, I've had embarrassed, public embarrassment at a level that no most people have it. So there you go. So let's go back to Michigan State. The program you designed was, if not the first, certainly one of the first programs trying to bring this quantitative, multidisciplinary approach to the practice. So you're working from white space here because I can't imagine there are any models to follow. So how do you go about designing a program that turned out to be as successful as yours was? Well, I, I tried to spend a lot of time in the market and understand, try to understand, not just assume what the market need is. Much like, you know, if you're doing a startup, you know, there are different methods, but there's a classic one like the method you go out and you interview 100 customers kind of idea or stakeholders. It doesn't all have to be customers. But the idea is you have assumptions and you go and try to test those in reality and see what you find out. And I tried to do that. You know, and I, I will just say Cyfarth was you know, some of the things that you were doing were really key in my thinking and particularly around process improvement. I mean, you're one of the only firms that, you know, were embracing those ideas and it made a lot of sense to me. And so I tried to bring that into, you know, those ideas into the curriculum, certainly tech and AI, you know, these ideas, but people always were saying, even President Obama said this at one point, like, what's the point of the third year of law school? And it's like, well, what if we had a higher value add in the third year with skills that are clearly useful I don't know precisely how people will put them together, but thinking in a process-oriented manner and understanding project management is probably going to be useful to you. That's kind of like a thesis. Knowing more about technology, knowing more about things like artificial intelligence, probably you can find a way to make it useful downstream, even if I don't have it all figured out exactly how you'll do it or even you and you don't. So the idea was to put some ingredients in there, which were related to what we saw in the market and try to do better product market fit, for lack of a better term, with the JD education. So there's a couple of constituency groups that you have to change their mindset a little bit. One is students who you want to join the program. I think I've mentioned this to you before. We had a, one of your old students, Samani Smathers, on who talked about being lured by free pizza into the program. But you've also got the faculty and the administration of law schools who you need to support or at least not obstruct this new way of thinking. How did you go about breaking down those barriers and getting support for this type of venture? Well, I, I would say that Joan Howarth, the former dean of Michigan State, was very, very helpful in a sense of 
trying to buttress what we were doing, you know, sort of let it happen. I mean, there was a lot explaining kind of a plan to her and stepping through that. That was helpful because she wanted to do something innovative, but maybe she didn't even precisely know what it would be. But like trying to create a safe space, for lack of a, a better way of saying it, so that we could sort of paint on the canvas. We were able to get a grant from the Kauffman Foundation. And the Kauffman Foundation is, uh, you know, one of the largest philanthropic organizations that supports entrepreneurship in both the U.S. and, and more broadly. But they supported this idea. And I frankly don't think it would have even been remotely successful without it, because otherwise you're taking resources from existing stuff and putting it to this. If you're taking net new resources, you can kind of say to people, what's it to you? It's not like it's coming from you or from anybody else. This is net new money. So getting that initial seed grant, I like to think of it as it was sort of like doing a startup. You know, we got the seed money. okay, and then the Series A is when the school sort of incorporates those ideas and kind of institutionalizes them because it's not like you're going public with this thing, you know, but like in the context of the academy, that would be kind of a way of thinking about it. So you build a successful program at Michigan State and then you move to Kent to start the law lab. Similar program, Dan, or what did you learn from your experience at Michigan State that you're able to apply and improve on at Kent? Well, you know, uh, there are very few schools in the United States that are law schools at technology universities. So Chicago Kent is the law school of the Illinois Institute of Technology. And I thought, well, I don't think MIT is starting a law school, but IIT has a law school. And they had a track record, you know, Ron Stout, Callie, John Mayer, I think you did a, a session with him. So they, they were already at Chicago Kent. So there was already a track record of these ideas being given life. And so I thought, well, shoot, uh, there's already momentum. The trail has already been partially cut here. In some sense, it might be easier to do it in a place where there's already um, a track record of those ideas being supported all the way up, you know, even to the president and provost of the university. At Illinois Tech, it's it's a situation where you don't have to talk people into tech and into innovation. I mean, that's sort of like what the school is about fundamentally. And so I do think that it's a bit easier to bring these ideas to life. And so that was sort of the logic of the move. So at this point, you've been at Michigan State and Kent for a number of years. You've had, a, I presume, a fair number of students who've come through the program and have been released into the wild. Do you stay in touch with them or do you watch their careers? Yeah, I try to where I can. I mean, uh, it's interesting to see in the medium term. Sometimes, right, you know, you come out and you don't get exactly the job you want or exactly the opportunity you want. But in the medium term, if you stay at it, you got a pretty good chance of getting to where you want. I was just kind of thinking about one of my students, Chase Hurley. He's wanted to work in the immigration space for a long time, and he really wanted to work at LegalZoom, and now he does. But it took a little while. He had to do some stuff along the way. I mean, he, he got product management experience and not in, in immigration, did some stuff in the immigration space. And, you know, ultimately, he's now at LegalZoom. I saw this picture. When LegalZoom went public, they had some, like, photos that were up, but his face was like, uh, he and his dog were on, up there on the NASDAQ. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. You've arrived. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah. It's got to make you feel good to see students that you helped train and give a different perspective to be successful like that or like Armani or, or others. Yeah, absolutely. It's really good. It, and, and again, I do think these things take time. I mean, if you go back in time, it was more of a leap of faith then than it is now because there's a lot more opportunities. I mean, just sheer number of legal tech startups, the number of law firms that have positions around these types of topics or ideas, it's just a lot larger than it was at that time. 
there are now more schools doing it too. So there's a back and forth that exists there, but it's definitely less of a leap of faith for people than it was, say, 10 years ago. Absolutely. Let's shift focus a little bit. You mentioned the startup world. Obviously, legal tech has been a hot area for the last bit of time. You founded and built a successful startup, Lex Predict, which you sold, and you advise and work with a bunch of startups. So what's your perspective on legal tech startup? If you talk to people who want to go into it, what sort of advice do you give them? Uh, try not to take too much money if you can. <laughs> which, uh, figure out the product market fit. Try to validate your assumptions in reality and just don't take too much money. I mean, I, I think we're seeing a wave of companies that have come through in an environment where there's too much money chasing too few deals. That's true for the whole economy, by the way. This isn't unique to our area. And so you see these evaluations that people have on the companies or the amount of money they took. And I thought, well, what what, what industry are you doing this in? Is this in some other sector? Like, is this in healthcare or in finance? Because these numbers don't quite add up to me in terms of what's the addressable market and what's the scalability of these things and on what timeline. I kind of fundamentally think it's a little overcooked right now. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be people who succeed, but I think we have this joke about Midwest venture capital, which is you just like make a profit and reinvest the money and you don't take money instead of like, I have a half-baked idea, give me a $10 million Series A or $30 million Series A. I mean, what, whatever. I guess I'm, I have a divergent view when it comes to all of that. Well, you made the point about the addressable market, and I've had the pleasure of working with a number of startups myself. And that seems to be a difficult reality for some startups to grasp because there are challenges in the market in legal tech in terms of budgets and the willingness of lawyers to invest and to change behaviors. You must have seen that in your own business. You must see it with startups you work with. Yeah, absolutely. There's a sales cycle. There's a culture. It's a tough place. It's not tougher than some other areas, but there's real challenges here. Even if you have a great product, it's not auto accepted necessarily by the market. And so you have to have a plan for it. I mean, my view is, again, I take money when I it's like we got this nail. And I just want to put gas on the on this thing. And that's that's the only reason to do it. Otherwise, stay small and work your way through it. And take the money when it really when you've got it nailed and you just want to put gas on it at the right time. You also talk a lot about law firms existing in this environment and the need for law firms to move from a purely service focused industry mindset to a service and product mindset. Talk a little bit about that because that's a big mindset change for law firms. It's different being a product company than it is being a services company. Yeah. And then even if you're not the product builder, you need to be the solution designer, which means you have to either build your own product or at least incorporate or invoke the appropriate product at the right time. Because to build a sort of cost-effective solution, let's call it, to whatever the problem is. I mean, some firms have gone into even maybe trying to build their own micro products. You know, there's this kind of fantasy with the products that they're going to do everything that the lawyers do, you know, the robot lawyer thesis or, or whatever you want to call it. That's not quite correct. It's not even really correct at all. It's also not correct to think, I mean, the historic model that we've had is just anytime you see complexity, throw more and more people at it kind of with very little, if any, technology other than kind of basic business like Word or something like this. Both of these positions seem pretty untenable to me. So the question is, somewhere in between all those, how are we going to put these bundles together? And that kind of solution engineering mindset, I mean, that is simply not something people are trained in historically, who are the key decision makers in law. And so building product service bundles is not necessarily what people thought they were getting into, but it's because of complexity. That's my North Star always. Legal complexity is the North Star. It's what drives the need for all 
Otherwise, you could just do it the old-fashioned way with people by hand. No problem. How do you advise uh, law firms other than hiring your graduates, which is always a good... Yeah, that's always an option. Yeah. It's always a first step. How do they go about effectuating this mindset change you're talking about? This view of the role of technology solutions in the practice from avoiding one extreme to the other and finding that balance? Over the years, I've done some training with, say, partners at law firms. And one of the focuses I have is to say, look, what we want to do is work to have a conversational level of understanding of all these technologies. You don't need to know about all of them in deep, deep detail. You got to survive the first conversation with the client or customer. In other words, you have to get enough of it landed to say, Let's set up a meeting. I'm going to bring in some members of my team and we're going to you know, sort of suss this whole thing out. But you got to get through that first meeting. And so you have to have enough understanding. I mean, some of the firms are, you know, they've invested a lot of money in all of this. And the sales force, let's call it the sales force, the partners of the sales force, basically, they need a better understanding. Of what do we even have on the menu so that when they're talking to their clients, they see sort of, let's just call it sales opportunities, opportunities for like, hey, we actually had done a project that's kind of similar to this and being able to just get that conversation landed so they can get to the second meeting where they can bring in the whole team. They don't have to be deep, deep experts, but you got to have enough to get to the follow-up. So I view that that is probably one of the bottlenecks here is getting people to the level where they can be conversant enough to then invoke the team. You don't have to play every instrument in the band. You just have to know what a symphony sounds like. You articulate that very simply, but that's not the easiest concept to get people to embrace. No, I've, I've taken some punches, but that's okay. I, I'm still standing. Uh, no, I mean, I, I think a law firm is a for-profit enterprise. So if you sort of align things with saying, look, let's think about how we can sell more units of stuff, that tends to get people on the right mindset that might listen to you. But it's really, it's not like, hey, you don't know anything. It's, it's like you're not required to. I mean, you can't know everything. The point is, I want to get you up to a level where you can actually draw upon all this expertise that your firm has spent all this money assembling. Let's figure out how we can get from here to there. And you've seen this, you've seen this, you see people sort of coming around. People tend to figure out how, how to effectuate their bottom line in a positive direction. So you usually can find some support for the idea. Well, the other drivers are, you know, the market shifts with more firms investing money in it and law firms are competitive and they don't want to be left behind. They don't quite know what they're doing, but they don't want to be left behind. And clients are continuing to drive, I think, some change here. Do you see the same role corporations play in their buying habits? Yeah, no, you you definitely see, obviously, one of the big stories of the 2010s is, you know, legal operations went from being a fairly niche. Most companies didn't have a person in this role to quite the opposite now. Teams of people, most decent-sized companies have at least one to several people whose kind of job is to do this type of work. And I do think the clock group, I mean, the ACC's had a long-standing kind of focus on this, but the clock group, I think, sort of to the extent they're in a little bit of a competition with one or that's been for the good as far as I'm concerned. is because it's like accelerating the knowledge transfer from the folks that have done this and and are kind of further along, the companies that are further along, let's say, in their maturity on these ideas, they pass the learnings on to other folks that are like earlier in their journey, let's say. The other topic you talk a lot about is the data-driven law practice and the, and the role of information analytics and data in decision-making, predictive analytics, et cetera. What do you mean by a data-driven law practice, Dan? Well, I guess I mean... Uh, to the extent that you're making a prediction or a forecast about something, what is the basis for that prediction and forecast? And you could go with your own experience, and that's probably going to be okay most of the time. But then the question is, 
are there other places where you can collect data and information and maybe make a better forecast or make it sooner or with more information? I mean, there's there's a lot of versions of it. If you think about all the big and small choices that people make in any kind of work stream within the field is there are choices that could be data enabled. And everybody loves the analogy for Moneyball. It's not that like baseball managers couldn't manage, but they can manage marginally better. And you add up a bunch of little marginal choices that are positive, and it actually does make a difference. Um, you know, one piece of technology that I think really has not gotten enough treatment in our space and will in this is machine summarization. Machines are getting increasingly good at summarizing really, really large bodies of documents quickly. Not perfectly, but quickly. And we're swimming in data and information in this field. What if I could give you an early look, something you're not going to really have insights on for weeks, and I can give it to you today. It's not going to be perfect, and you need to understand what its limits are, but you could get a little bit of a peek. You can see that that's immediately attractive to people, and we really haven't seen a lot of tech brought out around those topics. So there's a free idea if somebody wants to work on it. There you go. What's the biggest challenge you see in the use of data and the way you're describing it in law firms? It's not the availability data, but is it the availability of good data, clean data, the mindset of people who think they know everything and don't need information, some combination? What are the barriers? All of that. I mean, all all of that's the issue. One of the things we have is we have this fragmented IT environment where if we had to summarize what happened in the 2010s, and even this was true beforehand, but it's just like sort of on steroids is people have bought a a product, a a point solution for every problem practically that they could think of. And each of these solutions is like fairly narrow and solves a problem, right? And that's why they bought it because it did something. But there's a little bit of information in that system and a little one in this one and a little bit in this. And when you want to go horizontally across them, it's a big lift because the systems don't work together well. And so it's a Herculean effort. And this is true in law firms, and this is true in companies. It's the same sort of landscape, possibly worse, because in tech budgets in law departments are pretty, not nearly as large, obviously, as, as in uh, in law firms. And so this is what's really hampered our ability to really deploy AI in as meaningful a way, because you have to clean up the state environment. And that's not very elegant, but it's necessary. It's hard work. It's hard work. We see the same dynamic in the firm that you're describing, and it's not glamorous work. It's definitely not. It's the least glamorous thing. We're going to clean up the IT systems. It's very important. You know, if you're like, yeah, okay, sure. Uh, Okay. I'd rather have that piece of software that's going to do flashy things. But the other dynamic I've seen is that if you don't start using data, you never get clean data into the system. If people don't start seeing that it matters, they don't start paying attention to what code they're using or how they're, would you, you're nodding your head. I assume you agree with that. No, I agree. I mean, at a leadership level, I wouldn't say it's a leap of faith, but you have to sort of say, look, we're just going to start down this path. It's not unreasonable because what's going to happen over time is we're going to have stuff in systems of record and we'll have fairly high fidelity information in systems. And then we can connect them all and really unlock a lot of value. And I mean, being a data-driven organization is about sort of accepting that proposition, even if you don't see the value immediately from it. So I guess it's a leap of faith. If it's not such a crazy idea, lots of businesses out there are organized around these exact principles. But again, sometimes people say, well, I'm not seeing immediate payoff. You know, why are we doing this? Like, Well, look, I need the trailing 12 months of information around this, or I don't have enough data points to get you anything meaningful. But if you never start, you'll never do it. Yeah. And one of the dynamics that has been challenging for us, and I'm curious your reaction to this, is lawyers' desire for perfection and their training to avoid risk. Because if you start this, like you say, I'm not going to get you all the way there, but I can get you 80% of the way there. And for some lawyers, that's not good enough. They want to wait for it to be perfect. 
How do you deal with that dynamic? It's a tough one because it's a story we tell ourselves. It's not reality oriented. I mean, the few times that we've gone through things that people do in this field and actually measure their quality and performance, it's not nearly as good as we tell ourselves it is or as it is. And um, that's hard because people want to, again, I think all of us have this, we're the hero of our own story, you know, and so we're doing it the right way. And, the you know, and so any of these other things people want to do, you have to be held to a standard that isn't really a standard that exists. But, you know, you, you want to do it, they treat it like it's a first degree murder trial or something like this, rather than like, hey, there's errors in the process you have today. And also it takes forever and it costs way too much. This is what you would hear from a client. Like, I don't even need it to be 100% if that's the cost. How, what's, what does 98% cost? Oh, you know, like way less than that? I'll do the 98 and I'll onboard the 2% of risk. You know, that doesn't work in every context, but you need the customer, the clients to accept they're part of the problem too, because the client is a lawyer often, in, in, at least in the enterprise world. I mean, your client is the AGC of some company and they have a certain story of perfection that's also not true. And so this is, I think that's kind of the root. But to me, when you start measuring things, that's when this gets interesting more fundamentally, when you start measuring things. And so being data-driven is about actually measuring what's going on and seeing what it actually is, not, let's say, the story we tell ourselves. That's not a popular discussion to have, you know, but it's an honest one. And it's a necessary one. A necessary one, yeah. Yeah. Well, Dan, we've gone a little over our time. I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed the conversation, the, the great work you're doing. We've been pleased at the firm to have a number of your grads, both from Michigan State and Kent, and they've been great contributors. Many have gone on to do other things. So kudos to you for training a new generation of thinkers in the business and your own work in helping us move the profession forward. And thanks for your time today. Thank you very much. And I do thank Sifar Shaw for hiring our students over the years. We greatly appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.